I actually do an entire presentation on just miracles where we explore the philosophy, theology, and apologetics of miracles. And in there, I try to more or less make the case that a miracle is an act of God whereby he interrupts the normal course of the physical world for the purpose of vindicating a message or a messenger. All right, well, you, have you been in conversations where people kind of believe that the more scientifically advanced our society becomes, the more we learn about science, the less we are in need of religion and maybe the less believable miracles and supernatural world kind of sort of things become, right? It's like, no, I just believe in science. I don't believe in faith or miracles. In fact, that actually seems crazy because where's the scientific evidence for it or how do we make sense of it in the scientific world? Well, there's a lot of conversations that can happen around this conversation or this topic of science and miracles. And that is going to be the goal of today's show. How do we make sense of this? And what is the relationship between science and the supernatural world? My name is Ryan Pauly, and this is the show Think Well, training you to think well about the Christian faith so that you can engage the culture well. And today we're going to be talking about a chapter that came out of this book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the cosmos. And that chapter was written by my guest, Dr. Richard Howe. Dr. Howe, thank you so much for joining me today. Ryan, thanks so much. This is such a thrill and a privilege to be a part of your ministry. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. Uh, Richard and I first met back in 2015 at the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, which is uh, run by Frank Turek. Uh, But he is uh, the Provost Professor of Philosophy and Apologetics and the Norman Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And he writes and speaks and debates all over the place. And so you've been a busy man. I think you were just got back from a, a, a trip. And so I'm excited to be able to have you on finally and have this kind of conversation on the nature of science science, faith, miracles, and kind of your specialty even kind of comes into play here, which is uh, arguing for God's existence and the evidence for God's existence. So I'm excited for today's conversation uh, that we can have together. Excellent. So, Thank you. So, yeah. So so jumping in then, uh, if we're going to kind of talk about, let's get some definitions out of the way first. Um, has science disproved miracles? I think that miracles are often used in a wide variety of ways. You talk about in your chapter, like the miracle of birth, or we sometimes see these really just things that are in awe called a miracle. Or, hey, I got a parking spot in the parking lot. Hey, it's a miracle. Um, so how can we, for the sake of this conversation, define miracles in the way that we're going to be addressing it today? Yeah, and and I don't mean to disparage those uses of the term miracle when we talk about things that just strike us as so awesome, like childbirth or a beautiful sunset. But as a technician, in the context particularly of doing technical discussions of things like the relationship between science and and religion and things like that, I think it's incumbent that we define a term like miracles a certain way. And, And so what I do in the class, I actually do an entire presentation on just miracles where we explore the philosophy, theology and apologetics of miracles. And in there, I try to more or less make the case that a miracle is an act of God whereby he interrupts the normal course of the physical world for the purpose of vindicating a message or a messenger. And so one should notice in that definition, and perhaps this will be part of what we can engage in conversation today, is that the definition of miracle really presupposes that there is a God. Because if there is no God, then there couldn't be acts of God. Uh, So in order for there to be acts of God, like someone rising from the dead, as in the case of the Lord Jesus, there must be a God who is able to affect those kind of events. So the reason I bring that up sort of preemptively is I think a lot of times people uh, try to weigh the evidence for God by weighing the evidence for and against given miracles like the resurrection. And I think it's sort of getting the cart before the horse, if you will, that the question of God's existence is an antecedent one, in my judgment, and has to be settled. This is kind of the method that Geisler and Turek do in their 12 steps or 12 points, or I don't have enough faith to be an atheist as it goes by. They do that to establish the existence of God first before you make historical appeals to the evidence for things like the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Now, do you think that a lot of times this conversation, we we kind of do talk past each other because if we're having a conversation with a skeptic or an atheist or someone who has a completely different worldview and belief about God's existence, that we kind of come and approach it with our presuppositions in place of God exists, therefore it's possible. No, there is no God, therefore it's not possible. And, And really we have to take that step back in the conversation as well as not only 
to guide our own beliefs, but just to have a more productive conversation on the topic of miracles. Absolutely. And in fact, what I think this surfaces is a very critical point that governs everything downstream from that. And that is this, that when when it comes to trying to have the conversations about things like whether miracles are possible or whether God exists or other things perhaps we could think of, uh, uh, the te- the methods and tools and protocols that attend one kind of question might not be exactly the same way you would settle another kind of question. So it wouldn't right. make sense, for example, for a historian and a mathematician to have an argument about whether Lincoln was justified in suspending habeas corpus during the Civil War. You go, wait a minute, it's, it's not, it's a historical issue whether he did do that, but it's not a historical issue whether he was justified. That's more of a political philosophy kind of question. It certainly isn't a mathematical question. So what I've discovered over the years are when, particularly in this issue of the intersection of science and and theological and philosophical issues like uh, miracles, I found very often that the scientists, like a Richard Dawkins, comes to the question already with the wrong methodology. He's like someone trying to find seashells on a shore with a metal detector. And you go, well, but seashells are not made of metal. They're made of calcium carbonate. So your very method is already excluding the evidence for and against the existence of seashells on this particular spot on the, on the shore. So by parallel, the, 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 the scientific method in some respects is ill-equipped to settle issues that I would argue are philosophical issues, whatever that means, not, yeah. not science necessarily. To be sure, there may be overlap. They're both going to use logic. They're both going to use language. They're both both going to be guarded by ethical concerns, like we want to tell the truth versus lie and those kind of things. So there's there's some overlap, but then there are some important distinctions that have to be in place before I think one can broach the question of miracles, which again presupposes the question of God's existence. Yeah. So I think that kind of makes sense of of that, you know, if science is a study of the natural world, um, then, you know, if you're trying to use a natural uh, or something that studies the natural world to study supernatural, it doesn't fit. Kind of like you said, the metal detector trying to find seashells or I've heard about, you know, someone trying to uh, figure out how much you weigh using a ruler. Right. You're you're, the way in which you're trying to determine this or figure it out needs to match what you're figuring. So what would then would you kind of say, though, is we kind of recognize maybe not necessarily scientific in one sense, but what, how would you kind of explain or defend the fact that you would say the study of miracles is going to be more philosophical in nature? Why, why philosophical? So the reason I would frame it that way is, as I said, the, the question of the possibility of miracles is a function of the question of whether there is or isn't a God. And that, again, is part of the uh, kind of required by the definition I'm insisting upon. If a miracle is an act of God, then obviously there there couldn't be a miracle if there isn't a God. So as an antecedent, one would have to deal with the question of whether God does or doesn't exist. And very often, Ryan, I have found over the years, both as a student and then just reading literature as a as a professor, is that very often objections are brought up precisely because this prior question of God's existence and possibility of miracles wasn't already dealt with on its own terms. I'll give you one quick example. Uh, a lot of the objections in the 19th century against the, the claim that Isaiah wrote the entire book of Isaiah uh, was the fact that the latter part of Isaiah chapter 40 or 42-something mentions Cyrus, who presumably didn't live until two centuries after Isaiah. So the argument was, obviously, Isaiah couldn't have written this part of that book because he's talking about something that's still future to him. And then when I used to teach philosophy courses in just a general university setting where I could bank on the fact that not necessarily all my students were Christians, I would get them to brainstorm as to what kind of assumptions am I making by that argument. And they would come up with things like, well, you're assuming that the Cyrus who lived 200 years later uh, actually did live 200. Maybe he wasn't earlier. Or maybe Isaiah lived longer. And very often they point out various assumptions. Maybe there were two guys named Cyrus or whatever. And very often the assumptions that the students would point out were almost always historical. Where would you go? What department would you go to on the campus to find out whether there were two different guys named Cyrus or whether he did or didn't live at the time we thought or whether Isaiah didn't? Eventually, though, you, when, when I'm ready for them to kind of see the punchline, they go, well, you're assuming Isaiah couldn't know the future. 
You go, yeah, that is that is an assumption, isn't it? So, in other words, is it possible for human beings to know something before it happens? Well, by and large, I think that's a philosophical question. Why? Because it might involve the question of whether there's a God who knows the future, who can reveal the future to one of his prophets. Now, that may not prove that Isaiah is actually a prophet or whatever. I'm just trying to defeat the objection that says, well, we know he couldn't have done it, but they don't even make the assumption explicit. We know he couldn't have done it because couldn't have written it because he's writing about the future. What's the what's the unspoken assumption? Human beings can't know the future. Well, but. Whether they can or can't know the future might have everything to do with whether there is or isn't a God who knows the future who can reveal it, which defeats that objection. Again, it doesn't make the case that there is that God. It just tries to say, if there isn't, that's not going to be one of the reasons uh, that that he's not that there's no God. It's going to be something other than other than the ones you raise, or that's not going to be the reason why Isaiah didn't write that part, uh, because we've defeated that uh, defeater, if you will. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very similar to the conversation I've had on an airplane once where I was reading a, a apologetics book and the person asked me what I was reading. I said, Hey, it's this book that kind of argues that Christianity is true. And his response is, we well, can't know anything about religion. No one has died, come back from the dead and told us what happens. And I respond, I said, well, except for that wow. one guy who died, rose from the dead and told us what happens. And his, he goes, Oh, you're talking about Jesus, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. And so, but that's the question. Yeah, if if there is no God and no one has ever died and come back from the dead and told us what happens after death, then yeah, there is no way for us to know. But if God does exist and he has revealed that knowledge to us through Jesus who died, rose from the dead and told us what's going to happen, then I think we do have good reason to know. And so that is the deeper philosophical question. Now, what about those who talk about miracles in the sense of, look, the, the miracles happen within a physical world. And so then shouldn't we be able to use science that studies the physical world to know something or or prove or disprove these miracles since they're claiming to happen within nature? Yeah. In fact, I think that's actually happened historically. I don't know if this ever, ever did literally occur, but it ought to have occurred. And that is you hear people criticize Christians for uh, at one time in the past, believing that a bumblebee could only fly because it's miraculous. The argument was the body weight of a bumblebee is way too much for its wings to displace that much weight and cause it to fly. So therefore, Jesus makes the bumblebee fly. Well, they eventually discover that a bumblebee's wings are the muscles for the wings actually flap it at a hyper rate than what they thought. So even though the wings seem too small to displace his body weight, the fact that it can flap them so quickly means it can displace it and it can offset its weight in the air and then it can fly. So there now we've disproven a claim of a miracle by appealing to some uh, discoverable scientific principle or law, whatever. In fact, this is sort of the ingredients of, of the allegation that's often leveled against us as Christians that we're making a God of the gaps fallacy. So we see things happen. We don't know how to explain them. So we appeal to God as the uh, sort of fill in the gaps of our of our knowledge about it. But I think that's an illicit objection for this reason. Suppose a uh, fire detective was trying to discover the reasons why a certain house burned. And he starts putting together facts like there's some video evidence of the assailant leaving the house just before the fire breaks out. He looks like the owner of the house. He just took out a fire insurance policy just the day before. We found some matchbook with his fingerprint on it. And they start doing like that. And so the suppose the detective concludes, so it looks like this was arson. It wouldn't be an objection to go, oh, well, that's just the arson of the gaps fallacy because you just haven't found the natural way in which the fire occurred. You go, no, it's not that I can't explain it naturally. And so I'm positing an arson to fill a gap. It's that the evidence actually points to the arson. That's that's the thing. So very often what we are trying to do as apologists is not just say, well, we haven't explained this yet. So let's just invoke God to fill in a gap. Our argument is there are actually things that are evidence for the presence of an intelligent creator and designer. And that's the argument we're giving. So this God of the gaps thing, I think, is is a is a ruse in some respects, because it's really not getting at the heart of the kind of evidence that's being marshaled by the apologists for the existence of God. Now, what about miracles then? I suppose if somebody wants to say, 
how do we know that there isn't some quirky law every other third Haley's Comet that causes one person to pop out of their grave after three days? And that's what happened to Jesus. To me, then, they begin to strain their, their commitment to trying to find scientific laws beyond credibility. Because first of all, the scientific laws that they're trying to identify would, would, are supposed to be regularities in the physical world, not some uh, unknown law. In fact, I, I think a kind of a facetious way to counter is that very often the Dawkins of the world, they are making the natural law of the gaps fallacy. Because things that they haven't explained that we think are best accounted for by appeal to God, like fine-tuning of the universe or the irreducible complexity of biological systems or information in the DNA, whatever, and we appeal to an intelligence to, to explain those, that they say, well, maybe there's some law that we haven't discovered that explains why the universe has these uh, initial conditions or why. And you go, well, now, now you're doing exactly the same move you accused us of doing, namely appealing to a heretofore unknown law that maybe we'll discover someday. That's a natural law of the gap. So what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Yeah. So it's, it's helpful to understand. I mean, it's how we're kind of positing these different explanations. And so uh, you often hear this of, and this is what you're kind of, I think you're, you're, you're getting at, um, but where it's important to then go back to what we talked about at the beginning, where we're making certain presuppositions when we posit these explanations, because uh, often I've heard atheists say, well, yeah, if you, if you say, you know, God created this, well then you, you or the, what you're talking about, the arson example. Well, but we know that arsons exist. And so to bring an arson as an explanation makes sense because we know that they exist just like a painter for a painting or whatever, because we know that painters are real, but we have no evidence that there is a God. And so you first have to prove that there is a God before he can then become an explanation for the things that happen. And so that's right. kind of, I think what you're talking about is, is the importance there of kind of recognizing these different presuppositions. Right. And, and, and the presuppositions, some of those may very well themselves be uh, valid, if you will, or legitimate conclusions from certain uh, observations of, of the world around us. And this is what I like about the classical tradition of Aristotle uh, through Aquinas. Aquinas argues that all knowledge begins in the senses and just completed in the intellect. So when we make our arguments for God, there are really two classes of these kind of arguments philosophically. There are the class of arguments that are a argument to the best explanation kind of style, an abductive kind of argument. That would be like the fine tuning or the irreducible complexity or whatever. In other words, uh, everywhere that we encounter information, to use a specific example, we always uh, we always know it's a uh, intelligence. So if we find information in the DNA, for example, then the best and most reasonable explanation for the presence of information is the presence of an intelligence. Now, whether that intelligence is God or something else, that's a further argument to be made, but at least it gets the principle before us, namely, this is a better explanation than something else that we have. The other class would be a sort of um, a philosophical kind of argument where you're arguing from effect to cause. So just as ashes in a fireplace might lead someone to reasonably conclude that there's a there was a fire and a log, then can it be that there are certain truths about the physical or the natural world that are the effect of some first cause, as Aquinas would call it? That is much more philosophical. And unfortunately for people like me who are committed to this philosophical tradition, it's not really common knowledge anymore. So we're not walking around in the Middle Ages where people are trafficking in the four causes of Aristotle or form and matter or act and potency <laughs> uh, existence. And people are like, you know, they're all falling asleep. You're trying to give an argument here. Wait a minute. Let me let me tell you what Aristotle used to do. Like, yeah, get away from me. Hide the children. Uh, uh, but I would also, in my defense, argue, OK, so if I appeal to some of these more familiar kind of categories from the natural sciences, like the fine tuning or irreducible complexity, whatever, if I do that. I find myself with two results, either people, well, three really, one, people just, eh, I'm not persuaded, or others go, okay, maybe there's something out there that caused the universe, but how do you know that it's God? Why should we believe it has any of the attributes of God? How do we know there's only one of them? How do we know it still exists? How do you know it's good? And I would go, okay, those are really critical questions, because if none of those are true, then the being wouldn't be God in the Christian sense, right? But how do I make those arguments? Well, I would submit, 
as self-serving as it is for me to say as a philosopher, that those arguments are going to be philosophical, not scientific, to show why there could only be one God or why it is that God has to be good and has to have these superlative attributes that Christians have celebrated for 2,000 years of omnipotence, omniscience, and timeless, spaceless, and immutable, and in it, you know, these kind of things. Those, I think, are more philosophical, and for better or for worse, I think they, they only can be really done robustly with this more classical realism. Uh, but the third response that I think, besides people just rejecting it or people coming up with a Dawkins kind of responses, are people that if you said, you know, science has proven the universe hasn't always existed, so there must have been a cause of the universe. I think a lot of people go, that sounds like God to me. I mean, who else is in the business of making universes, right? And so were it not for the deleterious effects of sin via a lot of toxic voices that have entered the conversation over the centuries, I think normal people, if you will, would immediately conclude, well, if you've proven to me that the universe hasn't always existed and it was caused by something, what else, who else could do that except God? And they're, they're already yeah. there. You kind of got those three options that people, in my experience, come, uh, come back with. Yeah. So, so I want to present a question to you on that because I know your master's thesis was on the cosmological argument for God's existence and your doctoral thesis was on other arguments for God's existence. Mm -hmm. Um, so what about someone who says, okay, what you're talking about is like, okay, things don't just kind of pop into existence uncaused out of nothing. Um, there must be a cause and what kind of cause can explain the existence of our mm -hmm. universe? Uh, what about the, the, the comment or response, the objection that says, well, to claim that things don't pop into existence today doesn't mean that they never could. Um, the conditions at the time of the big bang aren't the same as now. So your argument fails again. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this response is uh, before that response came up and say the Christian was making certain arguments about God and his nature. And then the critic began to discover, well, a lot of the things that you're saying about this being don't really comport with the known laws of physics. But you would go, well, yeah, no, because he's not a physical. I mean, we might say that, but they'll, they'll, that'll be a, a weakness and a criticism. And then all of a sudden, when it pushes back to, let's say, Big Bang kind of discussion, and you say, well, before Planck time, the known laws of physics break down. I go, wait a minute. When those known laws of physics were inapplicable to the being I was positing, that was a detriment. But now all of a sudden, you're trying to give an argument. And it also appeals to something that's antecedent to and immune to and an exception to the, quote, known laws of physics. So it's sort of a cheating in a way. You can't all of a sudden it's a viable option to say, well, let's just table the laws of physics before Planck time. And then I can give you inflation or whatever I need from the Big Bang up until Planck time, whatever, however that's going to go. I can give you all that without having to make it comport with known laws of physics when they wouldn't let us do that with the character and nature and existence of God that didn't comport with the laws of physics because in our ju judgment, he wasn't a physical being. So you can't have it can't have it both ways. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a cosmologist. So uh, I, I very quickly, when the conversation starts getting into the weeds, uh, I very quickly exhaust my knowledge of the secondary and tertiary sources and say, well, okay, you, you got me there. I'm not really sure how to referee this debate. Here's some resources that I would commend to your reading, the debate that Bill Craig had with Quentin Smith, for example, on uh, uh, theism, atheism, and Big Bang cosmology. Uh, for example, uh, and 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 take it from there. And here's some atheists. You can read Victor Stinger, or you can read Stephen Hawking, or whatever on some of these questions. I mean, it's it's sort of a cop out in a way. But I, I I've tried to learn not to uh, go out too far on a limb in areas that are just not my area of formal training, yeah. uh, and embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah. So, and would that other scholars would do that too? That's, that's, it's just a dereliction. I'm telling you more than you want to know, by the way, but it's a dereliction <laughs> of scholarly duty that a, that a consummate scholar like a Richard Dawkins in his area writes a book on the existence of God. That would be as crazy as me writing a book on evolution. And it wouldn't take people very long who are evolutionists to see, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a scientist. How you shouldn't have written this book. This is silly. And I go, exactly. Dawkins shouldn't have written a book defending atheism because that's not a scientific question, ultimately, in my judgment. It's a philosophical question for better or for worse. Hmm. So
So kind of coming back then to this idea of miracles and I think happening within the natural world, what would you say then to maybe a Christian who responds and says, well, I had scientific evidence of some disease being real. Uh, it, you know, the person was prayed over and then the doctor did a scientific investigation study and found that there was no disease left. Uh, could science then be used to prove miracles are true? Well, in fact, I think things like this are the part and parcel of a lot of Gary Habermas's ministry, and it's one of the powers of his uh, his apologetic, is he actually does think that you can give a lot of empirical arguments for the reality of miracles, and from that, use that as an argument for God's existence. Now, I disagree with that in principle, but I don't disagree with about it in practice, because he can tell, he could fill up a whole book probably with stories where he's actually done that with giving evidence for the resurrection of Jesus to atheists who come to believe Jesus rose from the dead and that the God of the Bible is real, all in, all in one fell swoop. So I don't deny that that happens in in practice. But one thing that I'm guarded about um, is um, how people might appeal to certain events being miracles in the absence of a thoroughgoing philosophy, theology, and apologetic of miracles. Now, they may have that, and it's not mine, but a lot of times people that I've read— they, they throw these, hey, this guy got spontaneously healed of his cancer, whatever. They do that in the absence of any kind of thoughtful philosophy of, well, what is a miracle in the first place? And philosophically, and why are there miracles theologically before you get to whether there are miracles in, in the apologetic? And I, I think that's important to do is what I tried to do in that presentation to give my argument of what I think they are, but more controversial give my argument for why they are, which is what we started out with. Primarily, I think you would find in the Bible, miracles are very rare. Herbert Locklear in his All the Miracles in the Bible book finds that they come in clusters right around the time of the Exodus, right around the time of the prophets of Baal and the Elijah and Elisha, and then the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then you've got presumably thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of years in between that of, quote unquote, no miracles. So it's not sort of the standard way that God works in the world. Uh, and so I want to preserve that apologetic task that miracles are to have is to confirm a message and a messenger. But I'll add quickly, I'm not denying that miracles might happen apart from that purpose, that God in his mercy might decide to, to miraculously heal somebody. Uh, I certainly don't think that's out of the question. Right. Uh, that I wouldn't even deny that that's actually happened. There, it would just be more of an exception to say, no, this is just an act of mercy, that God did this because of his tenderness and care for this this particular person to, to take that away. And if, that, if I found myself with an ominous diagnosis, I would certainly want God to make an exception in my case as well. Yeah. And I think I, I heard someone say that if you add up all the miracles found in scripture and then divide it by like the number of years that scripture covers the, the timeline of, of the Bible. Uh, it's something like a miracle once every seven years or, or something like that. So in that it's, sense, yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not happening as frequently as it seems like when we're seeing like a highlight video, it's like watching a sports highlight video. And it's like, wow, basketball or baseball or hockey <laughs> is so interesting. There's always something crazy happening. And then you realize yeah. Like, for example, in, in my case, you know, with soccer, uh, 98% of it is extremely boring. And every now and then you get something interesting. Um, but anyways, yeah, some people get upset about that comment about <laughs> soccer. But anyways, um, but I think that's the, that's the idea that we're kind of going with here. Mm -hmm. Now, now with, with this whole kind of concept of, of, of understanding what science has to say about miracles, if, if science does not study the supernatural and therefore cannot refute or prove that miracles don't happen, or even, you know, the supernatural in that sense, uh, why do you think it's still so common to hear this idea of science and faith or science and miracles or science and supernatural being contradictory and that you have to choose between what you believe? So I think one of the things that is behind why science has the clout that it does for certain, and then from that, why it matters to a lot of people what it might say about other things that matter in our life, like our faith. It's really two reasons that at least come to mind. One is um, science very often seems to be so certain. There's a certain comfort that we find when we hear some scientific proof that this particular virus causes this particular disease. 
And so they think, okay, well, good. And they're on their way of curing that disease or whatever. Uh, or even more things that lend themselves more directly to the methods of mathematics. And mathematics seemingly is so certain. I mean, I remember as a new Christian and a teenager and, and some atheist friend of mine in high school, well, do you have a mathematical proof for the existence of God? You go, you're thinking, why would that matter to you? Well, because mathematics seems to be so certain. Can I be just as certain about my belief in God as I am about math? In fact, this was the impetus behind Descartes, who really was a mathematician more than he was a philosopher in many respects, and wanted philosophy to have the same level of certainty that he already knew his mathematics did. Uh, and I think it was a recipe for disaster, but be that as it may, it explains why people find it attractive. And then maybe a little bit more mundane uh, impetus, I think, is that science has uh, has given us such comforts. It's given us air conditioning. It's given us laptops and vaccines and automobiles. And so this this track record of really making life flourish as by our standards really gives science a, a leg up on other disciplines as far as how relevant it is to life itself. You know, so science then with all of its achievements is off can be contrasted with, well, the theologians are worried about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or, <laughs> or as I heard a speaker recently at an academic conference disparage the philosophers who are at the same conference. Oh, they're sitting around talking whether about whether red exists or whether the number two exists. Ha ha ha. You know, like how stupid could you be and how irrelevant could you be kind of kind of attitude. So science is certain. That makes it attractive, and science is relevant in, in a lot of people's um, minds. So, obviously, we, we if someone is a Christian and we've bought into the, the teachings of the Bible with its antiquity and belief in God, which is we can't see, hear, taste, touch, or smell directly, then we feel threatened, uh, at least in some quarters, by the scientist who wants to push this issue and go, given how well science has served you, don't you think it's important that that same science is trying to tell you you're you're you've bought into some kind of fantasy, uh, f you know, fairy tale in buying into sugar, the sky daddy, as they might call him or something like that. So it, it, it's, it's something that, you know, we have to battle. So I'll, I'll end with this on that respect, on that question. Very often I found uh, contemporary writers for example, rejecting some point in Aristotle, whatever that might be, some philosophical point. But their reasons for rejecting the point, I think they don't realize what's really leading them to reject it. Was it because the philosophical arguments that, that Aristotle might have given were bad? It's because the illustration of the philosophical argument that Aristotle used was antedated and antiquated uh, uh, physics or biology or whatever. In other words, he's got this real quirky, quaint kind of view about the physical world that we now know is false. Mm. And it's a fallacy to go, well, you know, he tries to illustrate this particular metaphysical point by giving me this physical illustration. And that illustration obviously is false. Therefore, the metaphysical point is obviously false. I go, that doesn't follow. It needs to stand or fall on its own philosophically, irrespective of whether the illustration he used was poor because he's, you know, 2,400 years ago and he didn't know as much about physics or biology that we know today. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's helpful to kind of wrapping our mind around the different aspects of this conversation. I think another one that you bring up uh, that is this helpful uh, is is this idea between the historical sciences versus the observational, the experimental science. And I think it kind of relates to this as well when it comes to miracles. But I was sitting on a panel Q&A at a conference down in San Diego where, a, where a, um attendee asked the question to the panel, you know, I think that that science is is way better than than say theology or any kind of biblical explanation because if all the science books in the world were destroyed and all the Bibles in the world were destroyed, then all the science books would find their way back and and kind of come back, but religious books um, would not. And so, therefore, science scientific information is either better or more reliable than any sort of religious information, considering these books are going to come back. And mm -hmm. uh, my response back was, well, I think you're confusing a, a, a experimental science, which is repeatable, observable, we're going to see it again, versus a historical science, which is studying a one-time event. Um, so just right. like a, a crime scene, you're never going to re-kill Bob um, when you're investigating that. He died once, and now you got to figure out how he died. Um, mm -hmm. If you destroyed that crime scene file, you're never going to replete it. But 
in no way does it say the science or forensic science that was used to get it is is wrong. Um, and so yeah, I see right. that as very similar to what you're talking about here. So can you also kind of walk through it as far as when it comes to miracles and studying the supernatural, why is it important to understand this distinction between the historical sciences versus the experimental or observational sciences? Well, we, we also know that the, the questioner was wrong because we, we saw the movie, The Book of Eli, and we know exactly that, you know, how much the Bible make its way back. So there's your proof right there, you know, if no one's seen that movie, go go watch that. I don't, I don't want to spoil it for you and, and such. Yeah, this is, a, you know, I think it illustrates a broader principle about how various methods uh, in, in investigating various aspects of reality are different from each other. So I'd already brought up, for example, the difference between, let's say, a historical versus a mathematical question. Or you can imagine a, a, a young man going to his father, Dad, how do I know when I've met the right girl? Oh, I've got a great app for that. You know, what you do is you enter her birth date and her weight and her height, and it's just this algorithm. You just go, no, that, that has nothing to do with, with exploring the, all the <clears throat> mysteries of romance and love and stuff between a man and a, and a woman. What happens, and this is a philosophical a mistake that I think has been made repeatedly. This is the subject of Etienne Gilson's book, The Unity of Philosophical Experience. And that is when thinkers take the methods of, there are two mistakes. Uh, the lesser would be when people, when scholars and researchers or whatever take the methods of one aspect of reality and illicitly use it for a different aspect of reality. So trying to take the methods of math to settle questions of love and romance, or aesthetics, or history, whatever, is just a mistake. What's worse in history of philosophy is taking the methods and tools and protocols of one aspect of reality and say, this is how we study reality as such. This is what the scientism of our day is. They've taken the tools of math and, and, and physics and such, uh, and, and they've said, these are the tools that tell us about the real as such. The problem is, it's, it's, you can prove that it's leaving out certain things that are real, at least I would argue are real. Like, I'll give one example, and you cut me off if I get, get too uh, boring here, Ryan. But look, when the, when, the, um, when the Nazis were on trial at Nuremberg, the, the famous uh, Nuremberg trial, uh, the justices of the trial were from the Soviet Union, France, the UK, and the United States. But none of the defendants were from any of those countries. Uh, so they couldn't be tried on the laws of those four countries because that's not where I'm a citizen. But they also couldn't be tried on the basis of German law because they didn't break any German laws. Right. Hitler had revamped the German law and the Constitution to make preparation for the, quote, final solution to the Jewish question. So how did they indict these Nazis? Well, they used a phrase during those trials. I don't think it was the first time it was used, but I guess it's what put this phrase on everyone's radar screen, is that they were accused of committing crimes against humanity. Now, I ask my students, I go, so what is a humanity? I mean, I'm a human. I know what a human is, but what is a humanity? Is it real in any sense of the term real or not? If you say it's not real in any sense of the term, then how could you possibly commit a crime against it? We need to apologize for the Nazis for committing a crime against something that wasn't even real. If you do think it's real, then there are some great chances that as you reflect on exactly what is humanity, that you're going to kind of explore that along the lines of the thinking of Plato or along the lines of the thinking of Aristotle. Now, there's some other options that come in in uh, modern and contemporary thought. But by and large, when you deal with what philosophers call a universal uh, a category that seemingly contains members that somehow all are participating in that category, where every human is a, is a human by what the theologians call the soul or its nature. Right now, that is not a scientific question. You don't you don't say, well, how much does humanity weigh? What's the physics of humanity? <laughs> no, that doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't, I don't think it follows without further argument that it doesn't make any sense to use the category. 
So now the question is, well, what is that category real or not? I mean, are we going to be realists or nominalists? Is it fully real like Plato? Is it a moderate realism like Aristotle? Is it a scholastic realism like Aquinas? Or is it unreal like a conceptualism of Malcolm? Or is it a totally just nothing real as a Hume might? I mean, where, where is a person going to fall on that spectrum? That very question is philosophical. It just is philosophical. Uh, I got cues in a debate once I had at Georgia State University with an atheist here in the Atlanta area where Rebecca and I live. And uh, I kept making this point. Well, the question of God's existence is a philosophical question. I kept just hammering that point. So during the Q&A, this gentleman came up to me, or not came up to me, but he came up to the microphone. And he goes, well, who are you to say that the question of God's existence is a, science, is a philosophical question? And I was sort of taken aback by that because to me, that's like saying, well, who are you to say that the study of plants is a botanical question? I go, it's not like we were trying to decide, hey, what can we give the botanist to study? Well, what hadn't been taken yet? Well, nobody's doing the plants yet. Okay, let's give plants to the botanist and let them study it. No, that's not what happened. Botany is just the name you give to the study of plants. So it's not like I'm going, well, what, what are the philosophers going to study? Well, what about God? Okay, we'll give them that. And that makes it a philo. No, it's the other way around. It's philosophy's the name we give to all the intellectual endeavors we go through to deal with the contours, the categories, the protocols, the, the logic, the glossary, whatever of this subject, whether it's God or, and back to my illustration, whether it's universals, whether they're real or not. So uh, the scientist, I think, is ill-equipped as a scientist to even have that conversation. Just like uh, one, uh, a person in counseling someone about how do you know when you're in love would be ill-equipped as a mathematician. Their mathematics is not going to be relevant as much as something else will be relevant. And it's, it's, I, I, I'm, an, I'm adamant about making sure that the protocols that we're using are relevant to the aspect of reality that, that is under investigation and about which questions are being asked. Yeah. So within that, then, would you then say, yeah, so the kind of experimental science, this repeatable, observable, uh, testable sort of thing that's studying the natural world is not going to fit. It's not going to be the appropriate way to measure the supernatural or miracles, but something like a forensic science or, or observational science, historic science, where we're studying these past events can be used, where we where we look using at kind of what has happened in the world um, and see events that have taken place and then draw conclusions from those events. So kind of like as William Lane Craig talks about for the cosmological argument, the fact that the universe had a beginning, um, is uh, is supported by scientific evidence, but it's inside of a philosophical argument that mm-hmm. has theological implications. Uh, and so the, yeah, I mean, the evidence can be used point. to support it in that way. Absolutely. This is a great point because when we make these appeals to uh, historical events, like say the resurrection of Jesus, we're not even then uh, ignoring things that we know in operation today. Like for example, someone may say, well, maybe they lied about it. And so one could build the counter argument psychologically that people wouldn't lie about something they or they wouldn't die for something that they knew they were lying about, uh, for example. And that's that's but we know that because of contemporary knowledge about human psychology, for example, and, and other things uh, that, that might be historical, we're still implementing principles, even from operational science, to use Kirby Anderson's uh, expression. When I first learned it, I think, or Norm Geisler. Uh, they're still using even principles of operation science to talk about unique things. In fact, I just heard uh, for the second or third time the uh, James Tour. Uh, discussion about origin of life. Back to a point you were making earlier. Well, there's you can't repeat the origin of life. It would, you know, you could you couldn't repeat it because it only happens once. You couldn't repeat right. the beginning of the universe because even if you made another universe, it wouldn't be the beginning of this one. It'd just be the beginning of another one, right? So these these past singularities, as they're sometimes called can still be broached by a uh, an application of other disciplines like you know the operational sciences reflecting back on well why would the fossils do this versus doing that well we know f- water's effect on on uh, uh, you know the sediment or whatever so it, they're still doing it but being able to keep those distinct when it's called on, I think it's critically important point about uh, operational. So we don't have to resurrect someone in the laboratory 
to make a cogent argument for the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way in principle. Yeah. Okay. So you make a point in your chapter that I found really interesting and helpful uh, is that, you know, when discussing intelligent design, um, you, you talk about inferring intelligent design does not strictly speaking require appealing to supernatural. So you use the example of, um, you know, some sort of natural law or, or, or whatever, and inferring uh, an intelligent design could just be the painter is the, you know, referring intelligence behind a building or whatever. So just because you find something that is purely natural and to say naturalistic explanations can account for this, it must be intelligent does not automatically mean supernatural. It can be something else natural in a sense, uh, but just simply intelligent. And so what if now coming back to miracles, miracles are then going to be positing that supernatural explanation. So this is a different kind of thing that we're saying is there's not a natural explanation for why this event took place. Mm -hmm. Now you're actually going to the God explanation with a miracle, the supernatural explanation, rather than another intelligent or another naturalistic account. So what would you say mm -hmm. then to the person who says, I don't see any need to jump to that supernatural explanation. Uh, if we don't understand something uh, and how it functions naturally, maybe give it more time or we just haven't found the other sort of natural explanation that can account for it. Uh, why feel the need to jump to supernatural? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one has to bear in mind, I think, a point I think we've already made and <clears throat> in, in this kind of a little side thing, but I'm just reminded about it, make sure it's front and center, that the appeal to a miraculous event like the resurrection of Jesus isn't part of an argument that there is this God. But to your point, well, OK, so grant that there's a God. Why should I necessarily conclude that this particular event was a miracle as opposed to not being a miracle? And there, I think it gets us into the question of of um, uh, the theological aspect of what miracles are in terms of confirmations of a sign. Interestingly, um, the, the, the only religions in the world that could really have any real robust sense of miracle would be religions that have a transcendent deity. Um, so this, this automatically excludes your Eastern religions, even if they have paranormal events. As, as Satya Sai Baba, sometimes the guru would somehow uh, materialize this ash at his fingertips and people were, or gold would leach out of his skin on his face and stuff. And I go, that's fine. But by definition, that's not a miracle because he denies that there's a being that's transcended to the universe, which is the, is the cause of miracles by definition. Now, again, I'd have to defend that more and more than merely just stipulating it, but nevertheless. So when it comes then to... Uh, we look at events in history with respect to Islam, for example, or Judaism or Christianity. It's a matter of then, is there a reasonable way to come to a conclusion that there's a pattern here? There's something going on in terms of these events that, that, that reinforce the idea that somebody's trying to tell us something. Uh, in fact, th we use this protocol in other instances. Jacques Vallée, the, the noted the UFO scientist after whom uh, Lacombe in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Spielberg's movie, was patterned uh, after Jacques Vallée. He, 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 he made a similar kind of argument about UFOs, and he thought they – in fact, he has a book called UFOs, Messengers of Deception. Why would he think that? Because he thinks he sees a pattern – to these kind of events. I think I see a pattern too, and I think it's not God. That's a different subject. Be as I may. The principle, that, though, is there seems to be a pattern to what was going on in the life of Abraham or Moses uh, or the apostles that are all pointing to this same revelation from the Creator God that we already, for other reasons, already knew existed. Josh McDowell, I think, a lot of his ministry early on when he was one of the first people really doing popular apologetics, that is popular in the sense that the cookies were on the bottom shelf for the rest of us, was trying to say, uh, if there was the God of the Bible and he did try to communicate with us, what might that look like? What, what would you expect? And I think one of the things that people would expect is that he would be able to confirm what he's trying to tell us by enabling otherwise normal human beings to perform feats that only God could do. Now, if a person wants to say, well, how do we know there's not some law that causes people to raise from the dead? I go, if you, if you want to go to that at length, uh, especially in light of the fact that we've already proven God's existence, why, why, it's almost like somebody say, well, I think the reason why this 
this catalyst occurred in this chemical thing was because of this enzyme. If you already have the enzyme there that can explain it, why would the scientists want to go, oh, well, no, how do we know it's not some, you know, something from another planet that's like, well, I guess that's logically possible, but why would you posit some other agent to, to that, that already can explain the event that's uh, that we're trying to explain? So if we've already got theism in place and we've already been able to show that the God of, of reality is transcendent and can do miracles, then let's look at, has he ever tried to reveal himself? And I think what a person will find is the only place that you find a supernatural transcendent deity interrupting the normal course of events to communicate something to us is in the Judeo-Christian tradition. You couldn't have that in the Eastern religions. They don't even have a transcendent deity. Uh, and so, so that's kind of oversimplified, but I think that's what's going on is this is a sort of a um, circumstantial evidence kind of argument in a way for his revelation of himself through his prophets and apostles and yeah. ultimately through the Lord Jesus. Yeah. What would you say in response to the skeptic that comes back and says, look, if you believe that God can intervene and interrupt kind of natural law or natural kind of course of action whenever he wants, then then how do you really trust anything when you're studying it? It, it, it could just be God intervening or changing or it, it does, does it not kind of break down into some sort of chaos if he can always just override these naturally occurring things? Yeah, there's, there's a great uh, cartoon I saw once, and it's these two scientists standing at a chalkboard. Now, maybe a lot of your listeners and viewers don't know what a chalkboard is, but nevertheless. <laughs> a whiteboard. Know, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> a whiteboard, okay. Uh, but at any rate, and there's this really, really complex uh, equations and then it comes down and then it goes, then a miracle occurs. And then there's all the rest of the equation. And one of the scientists looks at it and goes, I think you need to work out step number two here. You know, in other <laughs> words, he just inserts a miracle to compensate for what he wasn't able to do and connect everything and bridge the gap uh, in, in his arguments. So, yeah, but our claim, part of our theology of miracles includes the fact that they are an exception and that they are rare. That's why I don't like the traditions that say, hey, we're going to have a miracle healing service. We have one every Friday night at 7 p.m. ago. But you're evacuating the very evidentiary power that a miracle is supposed to have. Because if it just happens all the time, then we just call it a natural law. We don't call the flying bumblebee a miracle. We just say we can explain how it does it. And we've identified these, these natural laws. But if something happens that goes counter to everything we know about the world around us, that an axe head floats or donkey talks or someone rises from the dead, then it would seem, it would seem to reveal a sort of um, almost a, a, a different kind of resistance to the conclusion than rational to try to say, well, but how do we know this, that, and the other? So as far as my my perspective on miracles, we're far from being in danger of, well, everything's probably going to end up being miracles. And so therefore, it'll, it'll evacuate science of all of us. These go, yeah, these are these are events that are very rare and almost never, almost never happen. That's exactly why we don't identify them as a one more natural law, because people just don't come out of the grave on a regular basis. Our donkeys don't talk. Right. Only one that we know did that. Uh, axe heads don't fl float. We only know one. Uh, water doesn't turn to wine instantly. We've only known one time. So these are very, very narrow, singular kind of events about which we have this historical evidence in the context of a, of a theism. Yeah. So I think that's helpful is, is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not saying this happens all the time, therefore, but it's saying we have a good reason to believe that this kind of unique thing that normally doesn't take place did take place. And then how do we best explain that? Now I'm curious because uh, talking about going back to kind of the origin question, uh, what if the atheist posits something similar, right? So if we say, okay, well, based on kind of a historical science, we use the principle of uni uniformity where we, understand how things function today, and then we use that to explain what happened in the past. Well, but if they say, well, Christian, you don't do that. You don't use how we see things happen today and use that to explain things that happened in the past because people don't rise from the dead today. Therefore, we should understand that Jesus didn't rise from the dead either. But if you're going to posit something different could take place, uh, what if they say the same thing about the beginning of the universe where, yeah, today things don't just pop into existence, but Maybe something different happened back then, um, and I can make that same claim because you seem to make that same claim as well, that if there's evidence that something different took place, then we can say so yeah. 
it's not uniform. Well, oddly, he's making our argument. We do think the origin universe, something different happened back then. We call that creation. Now, he might say something different happened back then that wasn't a God. So that's fair. But in principle, he's making the same move that we're making. We are saying that the universe didn't pop into existence today or over and over again. And something different did happen uh, back then. So that, that, I mean, that, that, at least in principle, I'm not, I don't see that a, as an objection. But with respect to the, the resurrection, uh, if a person already is convinced that there is the transcendent God who th- that created the universe and sustains it continually in existence, then, then the, the idea that someone might rise from the dead or not is not something people would choke on as having – as if it was – troublesome to try to explain. It's like, well, this is the way Frank Turek argues. It's like, uh, uh, if you've already granted the quote-unquote miracle of creation, I wouldn't use the word miracle, but I get the point he's making. He makes it very effectively. Uh, if we've, If you already grant the miracle of creation, which he does first in his argument, then when we come along with a miracle of a resurrection, but that seems almost trivial by comparison, doesn't it? Right. So the question is not whether it's reasonable to believe that it occurred, given the principle of people coming from the dead, even though they don't do that anymore, because that's not really relevant. If you've got a transcendent God who can perform miracles, then its possibility is is just as possible as in, as raining tomorrow. So the fact that it doesn't occur often enough is in effect, in a sense, just irrelevant to the nature of the question. That's why I think the insistence upon the antecedent establishment of theism is so critical that it can preempt some of these questions. So now when you go, okay, so I can believe that someone, in as a matter of principle, I can just as easily believe someone rose from the dead as that uh, there was a hailstorm that took place during this particular battle. And you go, well, but with the latter, you believe in hailstorms because they occur regularly. Okay, that's fine. That just means they're not miracles. With the former, though, that's something that doesn't occur regularly. I said, that's fine. It's a miracle. So there are two things on the table. One, the principle about the plausibility of a miracle at all. And then the the plausibility that it actually occurred historically. That's actually, I'm not just lobbying for this presentation. I just keep reminding myself about it. When I said, that, when I talk about the philosophy, theology, and apologetic of miracles, that's that third to go, okay, fine. I can believe God can raise anybody from the dead that he wants to, but why should I believe that he ever did this? And more importantly, why should I believe he did this with, with uh, Jesus of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. And they go, that's just a great question. That's a historical question now. We've already settled its possibility. Now we're just talking about its actuality. And we get into the specifics of the nature of eyewitness testimony, for example, uh, the the impact that the something had on the first Christians, that something radically altered their worldview. The best explanation, it seems like, is the fact that they had an encounter with a risen Jesus. It rocked their world, literally, uh, uh, and, and such. And we try to amass this accumulation of historical evidence. In my experience, Ryan, the thing that many people that find the historical evidence less than plausible, more often than not, in my experience, are people that already don't believe in the existence of God. So they, yeah. they, they can't find it as easy to believe that someone rose from the dead in principle as there was a hailstorm 200 years ago during this battle, during the, this war, yeah. because the, the latter is a regular occurrence and the, and the former is a unique occurrence. But I'm going, but the nature of that unique occurrence is something that was already settled with the question of God's existence. We got to go back to that. Uh, I think that's what I find at least most of the time when the skeptics uh, bring these objections up. And yeah. I just say, well, we got to go back and deal with the question of God's existence now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, that's so helpful to kind of think through is there really is almost like this stepping stone process that in our conversations, we have to figure out where that person is. Because if we're mm-hmm. trying to argue for the existence of miracles and they don't even accept God's existence, we have to go back to kind of that previous step and kind of walk through that process with them. Now, maybe to, to finish up with this, there, there's been a discussion in the live chat about kind of the nature of faith and how we do we have to accept these things on faith? Is it not faith? Uh, is it faith for the unseen? 
mean? You know, that sort of question. Yeah. I think and I want to bring this up because if, if miracles um, cannot be necessarily proven or disproven using science, and we often see science is what gives us evidence, does that then mean, uh, how does faith, let me ask it this way, how does faith then come into play with understanding or believing in the reality of miracles? Yeah, so this is such a critically important question because I think a lot of Christians have uh, really a misconception about what faith, how that's been understood in the Christian tradition. Uh, not to mention how atheists misunderstand the concept. And it's not entirely their fault. They run into Christians that talk as if, well, you just have to accept it and not think about it. There are Christians that actually make those kind of claims. And, and I think that we shouldn't be talking this way because classically what you find in, in Christian tradition is the difference between faith and reason. That's often how they're juxtaposed is you, you believe something by reason when you believe something on the basis of it being demonstrated to be true to you. Now, what a demonstration looks like will depend on the kind of thing. So how we know Fermat's last theorem is true is a mathematical question. It has a mathematical proof. How do we know Lincoln had a beard is a historical question, and it is according to the protocols of history. How do we know, and you could put in whatever, it's going to have its own way of assailing and assessing that question in light of the kind of question it is, right? So, but if you believe it because it's been demonstrated and that's why you believe it, then classically that would be, I believe it on the basis of reason. In contrast, what faith has been in the Christian tradition is believing something on the basis of authority. Uh, so, for example, take Fermat's last theorem, I, I go into a little detail on my talks on this to push this point. But the but the punchline is, it's an incredibly complicated mathematical proof that was just proven to be true after 400 years uh, in the 90s, 1990s. Uh, and so, in, in the proof in the annals of uh, mathematics is 111 pages. Now, uh, I could tell somebody what Fermat's last theorem is, and they say, well, Richard, do you believe it's true? And I say, yes. Well, have you seen the demonstration? I said, I mean, no. I mean, it's just so complicated. Well, how do you, why do you believe it's true? The reason I believe it's true is because Andrew Wiles from Princeton University and his associates at various universities tell me that it's true. And I trust them. And now they could be lying to me or whatever. They could be mistaken. But I think at some point it would be foolish not to believe the world's most brilliant mathematicians when they tell you this mathematical theorem has been proven true, even though I can't understand and prove it true to myself. So we in that sense of faith, we use faith all the time. I mean, how do I'm not a scientist, as I said. How do I know what the speed of light is? Well, it's roughly 186,000 miles a second. Well, how do I know? Well, I didn't get some stopwatch like that and time it. How do I know? Well, that's what the physicists say. Could they all be lying? Could they all be mistaken? You know, I suppose that's logically possible, but it would seem foolish to just call too many of these things into question when the people that can demonstrate it have demonstrated it to themselves and they tell the rest of us. And so that's so here when it comes to the claims of of the scriptures, what we're doing is there's a lot of things in scriptures we can demonstrate. We can demonstrate God's existence. I would argue we can his existence and his attributes. Uh, we can demonstrate uh, the life, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. But one thing we, I think, can't demonstrate, strictly speaking, is that Jesus death pays for my sins. I was talking to a friend and we were practicing sharing the gospel because we were about to embark on a ministry opportunity one summer when we were in college. And um, and so the question was, you know, okay, you go first, you share the gospel. Well, you know, Jesus died for our sins. I said, wait a minute. I said, three people died on crosses on Mount Calvary on Good Friday. What makes his death different from the other two? And they're like, well, um, you know, I'm not sure. I said, I'm thinking that's what I'm thinking people are going to ask us more out talking about this. Lots of people die on crosses. What's so special about his? I think as a matter of principle, what's so special about his is what we know to be true about the death of Jesus, because what God has told us about that in his book, the Bible. Now, maybe the Bible's not true. Maybe it's the Quran. Maybe the Book of Mormon. Those are legitimate arguments to raise. But what what baffles me almost beyond words I would love to ask an atheist and go, look, uh, if you actually thought there was an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good being who wrote a book that was inerrant and he gave it to you and told you things about reality, 
do you think that you would be a fool for believing that? If you, if you really thought that was true, I mean, surely the atheists go, well, no, I don't think that's foolish. So, okay, because you treat us a lot of times like we're idiots for believing that an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God who gave us what we believe is an inerrant book, and we believe what that book says. Not just merely, oh, I don't think you should believe that book. Is it, that's fair. You, of course, you, that's a fair argument. Or I don't believe there's that God. Okay, that's fair. But what I'm asking is, if there is this, and this is the way that the Christian thinks it is, is that's foolish. And I get it. I get the impression from a lot of atheists, they still want to say there's something foolish about it. And I go, no, there are reasons for our faith. Augustine oftentimes would say, I may, you know, to go back to my Andrew Wiles example, I, I don't just believe any Yahoo that comes along and tells me anything about mathematics. <laughs> so reason tells me Andrew Wiles is to be believed because of who he is as a mathematician. Therefore, I take it on his authority that Fermat's last theorem has been proven true. By parallel, then, uh, there's reasons why we know God exists. He has these attributes and that he wrote this book and that it's inerrant. Now, we have to give those reasons, but that's what I think that we can demonstrate. Given that, then... The things that book tells me that I can't otherwise demonstrate, I accept it on the basis of that authority. I'm doing exactly the same thing there that I did with Andrew Wiles. And I think that's what we have to lobby for as Christians about faith and try to get Christians away from this idea. Well, the more you think about it, uh, the more you ruin the faith. It's like telling me the more I know about how good a mathematician Andrew Wiles is, the worse it is for me to trust him about Fermat's last theorem and say, no, it's the more it is to trust him, the more I know about him. The more we know about God and his book, the more we are confirmed in our faith that we're trusting what God tells us in that book. Yeah, man, that is so helpful. And I think there's, we're over time, but I think there's one really helpful, maybe or, or clarifying point I want to raise really quickly is what if someone comes back to what you just said and says, well, isn't there a logical fallacy that's an appeal to an authority? Aren't you just using a fallacious argument appealing to an authority? This is a fair argument to, to raise, but the logical argument, or should I say, the logical fallacy of appeal to authority is when someone appeals to an authority that's not an authority on right. the subject under consideration. Yeah. So the beautiful woman leaning on the hood of an automobile is not an argument that this automobile is a better automobile than that automobile, even though it's persuasive in the advertisements, right? So it's whether the authority is relevant. Is it is Andrew? Andrew Wiles, a relevant authority to the question yeah. of Fermat's last theorem. Yes, but not just, you know, my cousin who might be not an me. auto mechanic or something. <laughs> yeah, not me for certain. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, that's a fair question to raise and, and because it gives us the opportunity to bring out this careful distinction. Yes, the authorities have to be established as relevant and legitimate authorities re regarding the issue under consideration. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. And I think that's often a, a big misunderstanding when it comes to that logical fallacy is a, the belief that anytime you quote any authority as a justification, that that then commits the fallacy, even when it is an appropriate authority for good reasons, rather than just, well, my mom said, uh, or my my Sunday school teacher said, or my, my friend said. Um, so I think that's helpful. Well, Richard, thank you so much. I so appreciate uh, not only the chapter and helping kind of work through a, a very um, uh, uh, easy to understand explanation for why science does not refute the miraculous or supernatural, but also coming on the show and having this conversation with me. I'm so glad that we could finally get this done and, uh, and have this conversation together. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So, hey, for everybody else, again, there is that book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos. Uh, my guest, Dr. Richard Howe, did contribute two chapters overall to this huge, huge book. Also, I do want to take this time to remind you that between now and the end of the year, we are running our end of the year matching challenge. A group of generous monthly supporters have come together to pledge just over $13,000 to try to encourage individuals to come alongside and support this ministry. So they will match every donation, dollar for dollar, up to $13,320 or $230. One of those. So anyways, if you want more information on that, you're watching on YouTube, there's information on the bottom in the description. 
If you are on podcasts or radio, you can check out more on the website, think-well.org. Um, with that, uh, more interviews are going to be coming up on Mormonism and Argument from Desire are two that are in the works. And so you can continue to uh, check out those inter interviews, uh, subscribe so you don't miss one. And if this is something that you found uh, interesting and helpful, uh, you can share it with all those other people in your life that might find this also helpful and interesting. So with that, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to continue to think deeply about God Jesus and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. See you next time, everybody. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Just won't hesitate to follow.